Let's turn to God's Word now, to 2 Kings, and uh, chapter 6 is a part of the Elisha story, and we read from verse 8 through to verse 23. 2 Kings 6, 8 to 23. Now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Armenians are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh my God, what are we going to do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike those people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, This is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. And after they'd entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw this, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. And we thank God for uh, this, his word to us. Father, we ask now as we come to your word that you will speak into our hearts and minds, that you will speak to us so that we will understand, that we'll not be confused, but that we will have the ability to comprehend what you're saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. First and second Kings were written to the exiled people of God in Babylon. And life was comfortable and 
easy and good in Babylon. Now, sometimes we hear of all the, the really negative aspects of life in Babylon, you know, the idolatry and the immorality. And yes, there was lots of that. But strangely, this idolatry and immorality wasn't the greatest temptation for God's people in Babylon. Forgetting God was the greatest temptation for God's people in Babylon. Just settle down, enjoy this new life, this new experience, just get on with things, forget God. And they could argue this way, oh, you know, our God, well, he's been beaten, that's why we're here. This ever-present God who's supposed to be with his people all the time has gone AWOL, and this speaking God who constantly tells us things is now silent. And so they could argue, you know what? Let's just settle down. Let's just become like the culture around us. God is dead. Or if he's not dead, he's asleep. Let's just enjoy life in Babylon. That was the real temptation for those exiles in that city. And it's the real temptation that we face day and daily, because our present culture around us equals our Babylon. We're living in Babylon. And despite our issues and despite our problems, it's not a bad place. Isn't that right? You know, life is pretty good living in Northern Ireland in 2023. Cost of living, yes. Just over COVID, yes. Political problems. But, but by and large, you know, life is pleasant, isn't it? Please nod if you agree. Well, maybe you don't think it's good. I think it's good. So why should we just give up on God? Who needs God? Let's forget God. God is asleep. God is dead. God is irrelevant. And guess, here's another thing we could give up on. Let's give up on this very strange club that meets every Sunday morning called the church. I mean, who needs church? Because life is good and life is easy in Babylon. Let's just disappear into the culture that's all around us. It's easy. It's natural. It's attractive. The point of one and two kings was to stop people thinking like that. To stop people thinking like that. And God, through this great, these two great books, calls his people to something far, far better than simply just getting on with life and forgetting about him. God helps us to survive in our Babylon. If we want to survive in Babylon, then we've got to listen to him. And we've got to trust him. And God helps us survive in our Babylon by basically revealing himself. And, and he does so in three ways. And that's what we're going to look at briefly um, uh, the, the, rest of, the rest of the service. He reveals that he's an all-seeing, all-knowing God. And that those sections, verse 8 to, to verse 14. Now, the Middle East has always been a center of conflict, right, throughout the centuries. For example, this particular war between Aram or Syria and Israel was on and off for about 135 years. Yeah, you get that? 135 years of conflict. Because from the beginning, God's people were always under attack. Do you remember the Egyptians? The Egyptians tried to basically destroy the people and keep them in slavery. God said no let my people go, and they were released. 
But when they got to Canaan, to their home, then they had Canaanites attacking them, Midianites, Philistines, and many others. And then they had the Syrians, which you were thinking about here, that this group, Aram or Syria, is the same thing. The, As- the Assyrians also attacked them. The Babylonians took them into exile. And of course, the last empire was the Roman Empire that, that came into Canaan to attack and destroy. So it's always been a problem. God's people being attacked. The king of Aram in this particular part of the story had a very simple plan to target isolated communities along the 120-mile border, attack, rape, pillage. And of course, for the the Israeli army, it was impossible to seal and protect the border, 120 miles. It was impossible to do. But every time the king of Aram tried to attack, um, his plans were frustrated. And God revealed the plans of Aram or Syria to Elisha, the prophet of God. And the prophet of God, Elisha, went to the king of Israel and said, listen, um, don't go there, don't do that. Verse 9, the, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God time and again. Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. Now, you can imagine the Syrian king was absolutely enraged by this. 11 and 12 tells us this. He reckoned there must be a tout in in his military command. There must be some kind of informer, some kind of traitor. And they say, no, it's nothing to do with us. It's Elisha. Verse 11, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord and king, said the officer. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. And so the king of Aram says, okay, okay. So there's no tights, no no traitors, no informers. So um, get him, take him alive and bring him to me. Verse 13, go and find where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. And so the information came back. He's in a place called Dothan, a small town. They call it the city here, but a small town. And so the king of Aram gets a strike force together, a kind of SAS reading party, and they go by night and they surround the town. There's no escape. The town is surrounded and they wait. They wait. But what's the application of this, this all-seeing, all-knowing God? Here's an example, Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. It goes on to say, you know when I sit, you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. See, our God is all-seeing and all-knowing. It's about half past 12. November the 12th, 2029, at 12.28, what will you be doing? Do you know what you'll be doing in six years' time, this very moment? No. You can't know. You don't even know if you'll be alive tomorrow at half past 12, let alone in six years' time. 
We don't know. We can't know. But God knows. That's the point. He's saying to the people, I am the all-knowing, all-seeing God. Now, I ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe in this kind of God as you're, the God you believe in or the God that you kind of are interested in, as a tiny wee restricted God who can't do this and can't do the other? Or is he this great big God who's all-knowing and all-seeing? He sees it all and he knows it all. Do you know, you've got to get your thinking into line with who he is, who he really is. I mean, this is challenging, but it's also comforting, is it not, in our Babylon. He knows exactly what's going on in our lives. He knows exactly what's going on in the Middle East. Do you think he's lost control? Do you think he doesn't know what's going to end, how it's all going to end up? He knows exactly what's going to happen in our land, in every land, in your life, in every life, because he's all-seeing and all-knowing. He is God. That's the kind of God we need. Not none of these we kind of puppet on a string gods or a dead idol God, the real God. But he's also protecting and delivering God, verses 15 to 17. Well, in verse 15, let's read that. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. The servant gets up early to put the kettle on, get the porridge ready. You know, it's just like every other day, every other breakfast. And he probably thinks he's still asleep and he's actually, <laughs> he's got a, a nightmare. He's, he, he, he's been hit by a nightmare because he sees the enemy of his land right around the city. And a bit like Corporal Jones and Dad's army, you know, don't panic, don't panic. Well, of course, that's exactly what he does. And again, of course, if you're of a certain age, you'll have no idea what I'm just said there. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? His reaction, of course, is typical, isn't it, of human beings when something goes wrong. But the problem for us, you see, is this. One of our problems is that we are oblivious to the fact that we have an enemy who's out to destroy us. And we need protection. And we need deliverance on a daily basis. And I'm not just... I'm not primarily talking about terrorism or communism or Nazism or any other kind of ism. I'm talking primarily about spiritual warfare because there's too many of us in our land today, it seems to me, that, that think we're, this is a morally neutral world we live in, a morally neutral world. No, it's not. Satan longs to surround us and intimidate us and ultimately, his plan is to destroy us. So we can't afford to be spiritually ignorant or spiritually asleep or spiritually apathetic or spiritually unprepared. So when the anime attacks, we don't panic. We know exactly what's happening. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? Is that not what we cry out when things go wrong in our lives? But Elisha, I mean, he's prepared, he's alert, he's calm and confident. On the one side, there's the elite of the Syrian army. On the other side, we've got Elisha and a servant and maybe the dad's army from Dothan with a few old men and pitchforks. That's the two sides. 
And when we look at the world around us, the cruel, corrupt, crude world, it seems that we are surrounded and it seems that there's no hope and there's no future. And I know some of our parents of young children saying, what are we bringing our children into? The enemy is so big and so bad. And because the enemy is so big and so bad, and the enemy does want to destroy us, then verse 16 and 17 is very, very important. Alicia says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. We need, to, we need spiritual vision. We need to be able to see the invisible spiritual realities that are around us. We need the protecting, delivering God who is real. And I know, I, I talk to many people, and God seems so small. God seems so weak, and the problems seem so many and so big. And that causes a lot of fear. There's a lot of emotional fear in our community, uh, spiritual fear. But, but look what Alicia does. He, he, first of all, he, he shows sympathy. And that's what we've got to learn to do. We shouldn't be hard-hearted to people. He says, don't be afraid. He doesn't scold them. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And that's the message for you today. Don't be afraid. And then he says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. In other words, God is not like a, a good luck charm or pocket-sized deity. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8. Or 1 John 4, the one who is in you is greater than he is within the world. See, in Christ there is victory, salvation, deliverance, and protection. And I ask you, do you have him? Do you have him? Or are you on your own? Are you on your own when you face your fears and your doubts and your pain and your cancer and your death? Sympathy. Truth. And then prayer. This is pastoral care, isn't it, at its best? Sympathy. Truth. Prayer. Open up. The blind eyes. We often say here, we preach, or we quote Rico Tice, we preach Christ. God opens up blind eyes. And that's why he says, oh Lord, open his eyes so he may see what's really going on. Not what's going on in the service, but really going on. And that's what we pray. I mean, we've been praying for the service for weeks. That the fearful will see, that the unsaved will see, that the confused will see. Sympathy. Truth, prayer, that's how do we minister to the fearful. And his eyes were opened, verse 17. Look what happens. The Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of chariots, or horses and chariots of fire, all around Elisha. In other words, he saw the presence of God around Elisha. Now, while angels are not actually mentioned here, certainly their presence is implied. I mean, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, was going through the battle for the cross, and his disciples wanted to use force to uh, defend him. And this is what Jesus said, 
Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than six legions of angels? Do you know how many angels that is? 60,000. 60,000. But Jesus goes on, but how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that says it must happen this way? In other words, Jesus, Peter, Peter, I don't lack resources. I've got protection. I've got deliverance. And I will go through the cross. And it will look like defeat. But there will be victory. Now, we're surrounded by legions and legions of evil enemies. And it's, I know it's hard to see the horses and the chariots of fire. It's hard to be aware of the real, true presence of God. But he is here with us constantly as we face heartbreak or depression or health issues or even our very deaths. And we've got to remember verse 16. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And verse 17. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I think it's okay to ask God, you know, God, would you just let me see the chariots of fire? Would you just let me see for, for a moment or two your presence? I think it's okay to ask that. And when we do, he will let us see. The calm demeanor of Elisha was so admirable. His salvation wasn't God. His security wasn't God. He could face anyone, anything, because God was protecting him and God was delivering him. Finally, the gracious and saving God in that last section, 18 to 23. To cut a very long story short, we see here God showing mercy to his enemies. Elisha prays that the enemy will be blinded in verse 18. You might have thought that was a bit strange, but actually the Hebrew, according to Dale Ralph Davis, was more, not just like physical blindness, just blind permanently. It was like, as I quote Dale Ralph Davis, visionary befundlement and visual confusion. Okay, you get in the picture? They deserve punishment because they were the enemy, but they get the opposite. They get mercy and grace. Go through quickly the story. Verse 19, Elisha leads him to Samaria, the capital city of their enemy, of God's people. Verse 20, their sight is immediately restored, this visual confusion. Verse 21, the king suggests a slaughter of their enemies. Hmm, attractive idea, is it not? We've got them in a corner. Let's just wipe them out. Verses 22 and 23, Elisha suggests grace and salvation. Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. And then listen to this. So the bands from Aram, the armies from Aram, stopped raiding Israel's territory. See, salvation even to enemies. Grace, even to enemies. On a day of remembrance, we have lots of memories, haven't we? Memories of lost loved ones. Memories of hurt and pain. 
memories of awful enemies. But the truth that we must face up to is this. Because we can't do much about all of that. But the, face, the truth that we must face up to, that in our sin, without Jesus, we all are enemies of God. Every single one of us. Enemies of God. Now, unbelievers mock such an idea. They say, ah, that's, that's why you have no time for church. <laughs> and listen to that nonsense. And even religious people get very angry with such truth. Oh, how dare you say that I'm an enemy of God? But listen to the Word of God. The verse we started with, the verse that we had with the children, here it is again. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, now, He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in the sight without blemish and free from accusation. See, this wee story in 2 Kings 6 is not just a wee story to entertain us. It's there to tell us about salvation. And it's a picture, actually, of enemies being reconciled to God. It's a picture of what happens when I'm saved or when you're saved. It's a picture of the feasting at the king's table in heaven. It's a picture of the marriage feast of the Lamb where former enemies gather with their Savior. You see, we are sinners, and we are rebels, and we are enemies. But God, but God, but now, God shows mercy to rebels. He shows grace to undeserving. He shows friendship to even to enemies. That's who our God is. That's the real God. He sees and knows everything. He protects and delivers people like you and me. He shows grace and salvation even to enemies. So I ask you this question as we prepare to leave. Are you saved by Jesus? I mean, really? Are you saved? Or are you still an enemy of Jesus? See, the temptation for you and me is to settle down in our Babylon, just like the original recipients of these two great books, First and Second Kings. And the temptation is to say, you know what? God is dead, or at least he's asleep, and life is good. I don't need Jesus. I don't need anything. That's the temptation. The reality is that we should be reconciled to God. And that we can enjoy a similar kind of peace that verse 23 describes. So the bands, the armies from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. So we have peace in our heads and in our hearts and in our souls. And yes, even in our world, which has been ravaged by evil and sin. May God bless us as we seek to understand these things. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are thankful for who you are and how you present yourself to us so powerfully, um, all-seeing and all-knowing, 
protecting and delivering, saving and gracious. You are a, a wonderful God, and we pray that you'll open up our eyes and help us see, and may we indeed live for your glory and be set free from ourselves, from religion, from evil, and to know the reconciling work of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.